0: Hi, my name is Martin Purnell and welcome to Off-Greed Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who go or don't go to church and for those that are just disillusioned. On today's Off-Greed Christianity is a lady who became famous before she was 19 by not just winning an ordinary singing contest, oh no, but by becoming Ireland's first ever winner of the Eurovision Song Contest, even though I bought the main rival single, we won't talk about that. (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> a cancer scare in 1976 on a vocal cause hasn't affected her career at all which has seen our guest become a tv music series presenter in the usa and then the mep for Connacht Ulster. what will be our guest next career gives me great pleasure today to welcome to off-grid christianity dana dana thank you so much for spending time whereabouts are we speaking to you from please
1: well i am in galway where are you
0: i'm a uh, north coast of northern ireland
1: Oh, beautiful area. Yeah.
0: Gorgeous. Yeah, we have the better golf courses, but
1: we <laughs> <laughs> might get As more I'm rain. Not over. A golfer, i golfer. I won't argue that point.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much for your time. Uh, before we get into, well, your career to date and more besides, five important questions, if that's all right, Dana for you. Question number one, if you're sitting comfortably, then I shall begin. Uh-huh. If you could invite anybody from history for an evening meal, alive or dead, so that you could ask him questions, who would it be?
1: Oh, so really, a few sprang to mind. Mm. But I would like to invite Alexander Solzhenitsyn.
0: Oh, really? Wow. Yes. Why?
1: Well, I was nominated to run in the Irish presidential election yeah. in, in uh, 1997. And honestly, I had no intention or desire to be politically you know active. Yeah. Maybe because I'd seen politics fail so miserably in the north, because I was raised in Derry Mm -hmm. and was living there during the beginnings of the Troubles and continued to visit there throughout the Troubles. But we saw politics fail. So I just switched off completely. I, I didn't watch the news. I didn't want to know what politicians had to say. And yet I ended up being nominated to run in the Irish presidential election, mostly because I had a platform that could speak for people who felt no one was listening to them. Yeah. And who also felt that the constitution of Ireland, which I had not read, I knew some points about, but I flew over from America where we were living. Mm-hmm. I thought I'll underline and read the important points that I believe are in this Constitution. I ended up underlining almost every page wow. because the Irish Constitution was based on natural law. And it acknowledged in its first page that all power came from God through the people to those that they elected, and back to God. Oh, wow. It was a a totally Christian-based constitution, which actually was the foundation of the European Union also. It was built upon the beliefs of believers. And yet there just seemed to be a desire to, well, I guess you'd call it now cancel, Mm -hmm. (laughs) erase the roots then I, I read a, a comment by this man that I didn't know very much about, Alexander Eaton, which said, to destroy a people, you must first sever their roots. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, that is true. And I believed that was what was happening. So I, in my very first uh, speech, when I was... Nominated I quoted him and so I would be I'd be fascinated to to sit down with him yeah. in fact his wife addressed the Parliament on his behalf the European Parliament um, before he died and she reiterated to the Parliament the very great dangers that existed for this new european union and parliament if they didn't very carefully monitor that they didn't turn into basically what had happened in the soviet union where people's roots were severed Mm. and so the people were were left drifting he said as a child that he heard the old people say that Men have forgotten God, and that's why this is happening. And they were referring to the ruinous revolution in Russia.
0: Yeah, yeah, 1917, yeah.
1: And then he went from, um, his family were Orthodox uh, Russian. Okay. And they maintained and defied the um, order of the day. They maintained their religion. but He actually then became an atheist.
0: Oh, really?
1: Uh, he was very into Marxism, Len- yeah, yeah. Leninism. And he was actually sent to the gulag. He was jailed Mm -hmm. for eight years because he he wrote in a private letter. He wrote against what Stalin was doing. And I think we're seeing that today where there are thought police. You can't even think it. And for writing in a private letter, he spent eight years uh, in terrible conditions. But through that, he found a new belief in God a new Christian belief. Oh, wow. And so after 50 years, he actually said, you know, through all my writings, my historical examination, he, he actually is a literary a Nobel Prize winner. Yeah. But through all of those years and all of that examination and self-examination and, and experience and writing, he said the old people were right. People, men have forgotten God, and that's why this is happening. So I'd love to sit down for dinner with him. There are yeah. different writings about him, conflicting opinions about him, and I would just love to talk to that man.
0: Wow! But before he he died, he found his faith again. Is that right? He had, yes. Yeah. Wow. You mentioned, uh, right at the very beginning, there about the Irish Constitution, and that played an important part. As far as I was concerned, when I joined a certain radio station, because there were people down south, as we say here, in the Republic of Ireland who were taking the signal and broadcasting it because we were on satellite, broadcasting it in on medium wave and FM into Northern Ireland. And they were claiming that the Irish constitution was based on the American constitution, almost word for word, and therefore they had freedom of speech. I don't know. Is, 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 is that right? Yes, it's yes. based on the American one?
1: Yes, there was actually a quite a connection. And of course, they have. They don't dare to touch a comma in the mm. American Constitution. But when they were writing a new EU Constitution, when I when I was in Parliament um, from 1999 to 2004, during yeah. that period, they were writing a Constitution for Europe. And of course, they denied it, and. And my assistant and myself, we broke into the the room where they kept all the copies. We literally broke in one night, two <laughs> o'clock in the morning, and gathered as many as we could carry of this actually printed up European constitution. And then we, I held public meetings where I just handed it out. I said, look, this is it. It's being denied, but this is it. And this is where it conflicts with our constitution in many ways. Wow. And I actually asked an American historian. He was actually a Mormon, mm-hmm. but he was an expert in the American constitution. And I asked him to draw up a comparison between the EU constitution and the American constitution. And and he did. And he was a very learned man and a very measured man. And he basically said... Um, you know, if they're not very careful, this is going to go yeah. the way that America's going where the Constitution exists. It definitely is strong in what it says, but it will be considered irrelevant or out of date or they don't mean what they say.
0: Yeah, yeah. Wow. And that's only the first question.
1: <laughs> is it really? I thought we were finished. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
0: Question two. That's brilliant. Awesome. Thank you. I want to come to that that meal, by the way, when Alexander turns up. That'd be great. Yes. Question two. Who is your favourite biblical character or favourite biblical story or favourite parable, please, Donna?
1: John the Baptist.
0: Excellent. Because?
1: John the Baptist. You know, as they say in Ireland, I really have a gras for John the Baptist. I know we all know, that he was the first... To acknowledge Jesus, mm-hmm. and he did so as an unborn child, and he acknowledged yeah. Jesus as an unborn child. Yeah. Good he good. leapt in the womb, you know, and I believe that was like the first, not the first example of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but in the New Testament, it was Elizabeth who, if you like, was representative of the pre jesus the you know the generation waiting and the ark of the covenant the new tabernacle which was mary she was the first tabernacle that carried jesus Mm. it was the new ark of the covenant and they met and and elizabeth said that the child in her womb leapt yeah for joy yeah yeah Uh, Because it acknowledged Jesus in the womb of Mary. And, of course, he was uh, countercultural. He was fearless. He was courageous. But he was humble. You know, he said he wasn't fit to tie the straps of Jesus' sandals. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: You know, and yet he was, they say, the last prophet, really, the last great prophet prophet acknowledged in in scripture so yeah got a lot of time for him yeah
0: great answer thank you two great answers question three Donna, if you could be i do say normally prime minister of the uk or president of the usa but i also will now say or t-shirt if you want to be t-shirt you can for the Mm. day i could change any law or impose a new law what would it be and which one are you going to go for which job title by the way
1: well why not go for all three (laughs) You not? Know? Why not? <laughs> when I was nominated to run the presidential election, I had never been involved in politics. Yeah. We weren't living in Ireland. I didn't truly know what we were getting into. And my husband looked at me when I got nominated. I was first independent ever nominated. Yeah. And he said, Listen, why don't you just start at the top and work your way down? <laughs> so <laughs> we'll do that, then we'll work at the top, work our way down. I would reinstate a law mm-hmm. protecting the life and the dignity of each person from the moment of their conception until their natural death. And I would incorporate in that law support and protection of mothers who, in difficult circumstances, carry their baby to birth. Mm-hmm. So I would link the two.
0: You say reinstate Yes. Expand, please.
1: Well, it has been, that protection has been removed Mm -hmm. in the Irish constitution, in England, which doesn't have a written constitution, but does have verbally a constitution for the country. And in America, Roe versus Wade was just overturned. But even on a statewide level, there's still battles going on about the dignity and the protection of unborn children and their mothers.
0: Yeah. It's great that you've linked the mother in there as well. Obviously, I thought you might be choosing that. Anne Whittacombe on a previous podcast a few weeks ago, she went for the same thing as, as you have more or less, as, as well as quite a few other people, I must admit. Yeah. yeah, it's very contentious, isn't it, in certain quarters?
1: Well, well, uh, but also, it's such a basic truth that if you believe in, in God, or if you believe, I mean, I, I know, I, I've met wonderful feminists for life who don't believe in God, but they do believe in the natural order of life, mm-hmm. that a mother carries her baby and gives birth to her baby and they should be protected.
0: Thank you. Question four, outside of family events, what has been your most enjoyable day out so far, please, Donna?
1: Well, I would have to say that it's got to be my day out in Amsterdam (laughs) when I sang in Eurovision and my song became the winning song. Yeah. And even though you did buy the single of my opposition from the I didn't say which one, though.
0: I didn't say which one.
1: (laughs) Well, you don't need to. Because I was a huge, huge fan of Mary Hopkins.
0: It was her, yes.
1: Oh, I, I absolutely loved her. And for me, the huge thrill of going to Amsterdam was that I would meet her. Yes. And there's nothing as terrible as meeting someone that you've put on a pedestal and finding out that they're really quite nasty. <laughs> <laughs> but she was just everything I hoped she'd be. She was a really beautiful person. Yeah. And and that was wonderful. And And her mother who was with her and my mother was with me they were just two very similar feet in the ground working class women and they clicked as much wow. as we did yeah it was lovely wow that's brilliant yeah.
0: because if i'm right mary can't stand her song whereas you don't i don't think
1: well i'm so sad that mary is she's still recording and i do we haven't actually been in touch but i still have such a special place in my heart for mary hopkins she's such a beautiful unique voice yeah and i know she has recorded and i love to hear her sing but i'm i'd love to meet her again actually in person when i started singing as a solo singer i was in folk music Mm -hmm. so i was very into irish folk and american folk i loved american folk and To me, All Kinds of Everything is like a beautiful, simple folk song, you know? Yeah, yeah. More than it is a pop song, it's a folk song. So I have a great fondness for it. And I've often said, thank goodness I didn't win with a song like My Way, with this big booming ending. And otherwise, you know, I'd be dead by now, definitely.
0: (laughs) I don't think Frank Sinatra actually liked that song from what I've gathered.
1: Really? Yeah, I
0: don't think he did, no. No. There you go. No.
1: Don't tell Paul Anker because he'd be really upset.
0: I'm sure he would be. I'm sure he would be. In fact, if I remember rightly, just showing my age here slightly, David Bowie loved it so much, he tried to buy the rights for it, but it was outbid, I think, or whatever, by Paul Anker.
1: Really? Uh,
0: yeah, yeah, from the original French version. And so wow. David Bowie then... If you know Life on Mars, he took yes. the, he took the basic chord structure and messed around with it. And so Life on Mars is based on um, my way.
1: Oh, remind me to tell you something about David Bowie. Go on then. What, what, what now? What, yeah, go on, and then we'll carry on afterwards. <laughs> well, after I won Eurovision, of course, I, I was still at school at the time and I was, I was a musician because yeah. piano was my instrument, not the voice. Okay. And i was taking part in the first anglo-american television link up that was so it would have been late 1970s or early 71s and we were in the talk of the times as far as i remember and we were linking up to america and it was a real big thing and dion warwick was the co-presenter in america right, i can't remember who presented with us in england but there was a lot of artists from both sides taking part.
0: It wasn't Simon D, was it? He was talking no. to him those days.
1: No, no, it wasn't him. Okay, I must look that up.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: but uh, the newcomer had straggly blonde hair, skinny blue jeans, and a different colored blue denim jacket and a t shirt. And that was David Bowie. Wow. He got the awards of best newcomer.
0: Wow. Thank you. That's a great answer. What has been your most embarrassing moment, Donna?
1: I've had a few.
0: <laughs> That's from my way.
1: Am I only allowed to tell you one? <laughs> you
0: can tell as many as you want.
1: <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you one from my singing career. We were in, we were in Germany uh, and it was a tour. It was a European mm. tour. And it was myself and Engelbert Humperdinck. And we had our own orchestra with us. So everywhere we flew, we all flew together. you know in in, in the one airplane and it was a classical concert hall so it didn't have curtains like a like a theater yes so it had you walk through a door and you're on the stage but they had built up in the middle of the stage area another higher stage area for the orchestra and Mm -hmm. for the singer so you'd walk out through this door across the stage and up about four or five steps and then your microphone was in the middle of that that area so I was told that I would take only one curtain call and that would be it. So I went back for my curtain call and I was given a huge armful of flowers mm. and they didn't wrap them in cellophane. They were just tied with a ribbon. There was like thorns on them and everything with big bouquet flowers. And I walked off and anyway, I, I got a very lovely reception. And so the stage manager said, go back, go back. And I said, all right, I'm not supposed to go back, go back, take another bow. So we opened the door, but it was pitch black. So I, I walked to where I felt the steps were, stepped on the first step, stepped on the edge of my dress and fell on my mouth and nose oh. up the steps, my elbows forward, the flowers all around me. And then the man with the, the spotlight yeah, yeah. found me. <laughs> I'm lying there, a terrible mess, and I was hurting everywhere my knees, my shins, my elbows. And the uh, orchestra leader, Scottish guy, he came over and he helped me up. The flowers were all bent. <laughs> and uh, I got up to the main microphone, and I could hear like the trombos, the trombones were going, you know. <laughs> What I didn't know was as I fell forward on my elbows, I had ripped the zip completely out of the back of my dress. Oh, no. Oh, it was the most terrible moment when I realised what it must have been like from the back. (laughs) I kind of, oh, I'll never, ever forget it.
0: Well, I'm Mm. dying to say that you had all kinds of everything when that happened, but (laughs) I won't. Because that's a very cheap, cheap joke. I won't say it. (laughs) <laughs>
1: okay
0: okay <laughs> <laughs> wow please tell me that's on youtube somewhere or it's been no, recorded
1: no those were in the days before youtube yeah no one had mm. a f-
0: camera oh. well thank you that would have been embarrassing i must have it that it was, was. <laughs> it was well thank you so much for that Della. i spent some time thinking how we're going to take this interview now basically at least three career darnas. you've got the singing Darna, which we've alluded to We've got the Euro MEP Dana, which we've already alluded to as well. There's also the TV Dana, because mm-hmm. you were heavily involved in that. I'd like, if that's right, to start off with why you went to America. But also, I noticed in my little research I did that way back in the, the early 70s, I think it was 1974, you did a, a chat show for the BBC
1: called A Day With Dana. What was the format? Oh, it was a television show yeah. a series and actually it was a wonderful format where I would drive in a little sports car mm-hmm. from A to B to C and along the way I would see you know the touristy or interesting things that talk to people yeah. and right. sing songs as I was driving and then sing songs in different locations and then sing finally at the closing, like whether it was a concert or whether it was in a hospital. That was actually an unbelievable experience because they had formulated the idea for the show and met with me and my agent at Katz. And (laughs) I couldn't drive. (laughs) I'll never forget the actual look (laughs) on the face of the producer, Peter Whitmore, and he used to do all the comedy yeah. shows. He was a great comedy producer.
0: Yeah, he was involved in than & Wise, I think. Yeah,
1: but he wasn't laughing that day. So he said, oh, he said, oh, my God. He said, we've, we've got funding and everything ready to go. He said, you're going to have to learn to drive. So I, under great pressure, I started taking lessons. But I only had a matter of like six or eight weeks. And I no. failed my test. no. So for the recording, the very first day recording, the first song was Chelsea Morning. Wake up, it's a Chelsea morning. And the first thing that I hear, da 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 And I'm driving this sports car up the cobbled lanes of Chelsea
0: uh-huh.
1: and had a start at A and finish at B, where they put a marking on the road where the camera was and I'm thinking to myself, oh, please don't let me hit the camera, please. I'd never driven on my own before, and I drove up there and I'd stopped at the right space. I thought, oh, thank you. And then they said, OK, can you just back up and we'll, we'll, we'll take that now? I had to reverse up this flipping little cobbled lane. And the next shot, I had to, I had to drive over Chelsea Bridge singing live.
0: Oh, really? Not my me? Yeah.
1: Yeah, not miming, with the sound man crouched in the, you know, where the The passenger seat was. He was crouched in the well of the passenger seat with a microphone. (laughs) And I thought, what good is he going to be to me? Like, if I hit a buzz, he can't even see where we are. Oh, it was a baptism of fire. But I loved that series. I really, really loved it. And I really wish I had videos of it.
0: Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I'm glad I mentioned it because someone told me a few years ago when I moved over here that he thinks that the way God works in his life, and I think it applies to me as well, is, is that whatever you've done in the past 20, 30 years, God won't forget that because they'll come back. And here you are. You had an introduction here to the BBC in your chat show, and then you end up in America. Yep. So with that in mind, I'd like this rest of the podcast, please, to be – for encouraging those that are feeling disillusioned and for those that say, you know, and can say, hey, actually, you know, don't give up. God is still here and this is what's this what happened to me sort of thing. So with that in mind, then Dana, tell us about why you went to America and how you ended up on your own TV series, please.
1: First of all, I would say that the most difficult times for for me as a believer in knowing that there is a God. Yeah. Because for a time I thought there was no God. And then when I was very blessed in a moment when someone prayed over me and the reality of God was so real that I felt if I reached out my hand, I would touch him. Oh, wow. And I never lost that absolute sureness that, that there is a God. But the most difficult time is what I call the holding pattern. You know, when you are praying about what what you're to do in your life, maybe about a particular problem or a decision you have to make, and you're really, really praying hard, and yet it seems you're getting no answer. Yeah. And it's taken a very long time to realize that it isn't that there isn't an answer. It's just that the timing isn't right. and. It's like you're. we're one part of the jigsaw yeah, yeah. That, that God has to fit together. He has to fit together the people around it who will make it happen and the right timing. Mm. So we had been praying for, I'd say, about three years, maybe more, because we were living in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. But the bulk of my work, and Damien was
0: my manager
1: and yeah. worked with me, it was in the UK or Europe or America. It meant that our time with our children was always difficult Mm -hmm. to get enough time. And we'd have holidays together. And I loved doing summer seasons, because then we were in one place. And I could be with them all day, and we'd go out and work at night and come back. And winter seasons, I loved doing pantomime, because again, we were in one place. But apart from that, it was, oh, I used to get so depressed. And, oh, wow. and so we just, I remember leaving the, the, the girls at the time, they were old enough to go to school, dropping them at school and driving back. And we lived in a beautiful house and we loved where we lived. And I just stopped the car and driving up the driveway. And I just said, Lord, just take it all, take everything but please give me time with our children. And, and and it would have been about maybe still two years after that, that my husband, and it's too long a story to go into, but my husband was offered a job setting up a retreat program and eventually retreat center with Mother Angelica,
0: mm-hmm. who
1: was the founder of EWTN. And for anyone who doesn't know about EWTN or Mother Angelica, I really recommend you read her biography. She was from an enclosed order that didn't have a television or radio, but she was a wonderful communicator and teacher. So she was doing little teachings and they were being recorded in a, a local station and then distributed out to other stations. And the local station was going to show a film that she felt was sacrilegious. And the owner of the station was a lapsed Catholic. He was Italian and she was Italian. Mm -hmm. And so she went to him and she said, you know, you can't show that film. And he basically said, you can't tell me what I can show. And she said, if you show that film, I can never record here again. And he said, well, mother, if you don't record here, you're not going to be recording anywhere else. Because, like, I'm the real deal here if you want to do your. So she drove back to the convent and they were building a garage. And so she sent to the workmen, can you make that longer and wider? (laughs) And the workman says, how many cars are you going to put in here, mother? (laughs) She said, no, she says, I'm going to make it a television station. And that's how EWTN began and it's now the biggest global Catholic teaching network in the world. Wow. Damien was offered a job. I wasn't offered a job to go there. I felt I was going there to retire. And we sold our home. We gave up our careers and we moved to Alabama, Birmingham, Alabama. And when we were there about nine months or so, mother said one day to Damien we're talking heads you know Mm -hmm. we don't have any music and she said I want I want to give a platform to music ministries and I want to reach young people would Dana do a series for me of music and an interview I mean we only live 10 minutes away so I said if I can take the children to school and I can pick them up again yeah I'll do it wow and that's how I ended up recording a great deal of series for EWTN.
0: Wow. You see, that just shows, doesn't it? Okay, and this time uh, with EWTN, I take it a car wasn't really involved. So you know. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, you know, from what happened previously, 20 years previous, that comes back again to give you that kickstart to know that you could do it, which is brilliant.
1: Yeah, I, I do believe, uh, Martin, that like all the experiences of our lives... We don't really know what gifts we have. You know, we really don't. No. and But only God knows that. And he gathers together all the, let's call them themes yeah. in our life, all the things we've learned, all the things we don't know we know, and he kind of neatly ties them together for each experience we encounter. Because you never stop encountering a new experience with with God because he's he's always leading. You know, he's always encouraging us to keep moving forward. Yeah. When did you become a Christian, Donna? Well, I was born into a Catholic home where we practiced our faith and we prayed together as a family. Mm -hmm. We prayed the rosary, which is basically a meditation on the life of Christ. And and it's really in many ways through the eyes of his mother, and we would oh we were never out of trouble when we prayed the Roshi, because there were six of us, we'd all be kneeling down, trying to push one another over and make each other <laughs> laugh like we were never out of trouble. But in my community, all my friends went to mass, mm-hmm. so it wasn't something that was extraordinary or you were countercultural. You 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 know it was just life yeah yeah and my parents never really kind of insisted on or talked about you've got to believe this or that or the other but they lived it they lived it so it was always part of what we did i remember little phrases you know that my mother would say never never regret what you give away to the church or to God because he'll always give it back to you more than you give Yes, little things but when I was 16 and I was 15 actually I just woke up one morning and I just knew with the conviction that a 15 year old has there wasn't any God and that I'd been lied to Mm. and I just felt totally alone Mm. isolated and I just absolutely knew there was no God and I, I couldn't even talk about it I continued going to Mass because my mother would have killed me if I didn't. So I continued going to church. But it was a very, very hard year for me. Very hard. And then, so I was coming up 16, 17. And we, every year, in I went to a convent school. We would have a three-day silent retreat. Mm-hmm. And during that time, you would have prayer time and At the end of the three days, you would go to confession. And I didn't want to go to confession. I didn't want to be in the church, nothing. But you had to go. So I went into confession and the priest, I'll never forget, his name was Father Hamill. I mean, I just burst into tears. I couldn't even talk. And he he said, why don't you just wait and we'll talk later? And I waited and we talked later and I told him what I felt. And he said, well, basically what he said was, if what you think is true, because I thought God was the escape, you know, Mm -hmm. I thought God was like a big lump of putty in the sky, that if you had a worry or a fear, you'd grab a bit of this God putty and you'd push it in the crack and you'd keep going, but it didn't remove the crack, it just filled it. You know, it, it was an escape. So he said, if what I thought was true, then to live the Christian life must surely be the easiest way, like rose-colored glasses. Mm -hmm. He said, that was not so, because to live the Christian life would be the most challenging, but the most fulfilling road I would take. And I remember thinking, oh, I never thought of that, you know, I never thought about that. It wasn't like a big light bulb. Yeah, yeah. So when I came closer to going to Eurovision, I was beginning my own journey, my own walk in my relationship with God. You know, and it was often one step forward and five steps back. And the one thing I did very much feel was I would never want to push my beliefs on anyone else because I knew how fragile I felt. At the same time, I learned that if anyone asks me, I have every right to say what I believe. Yeah, I'm not going to kind of ram it down your throat. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And St. Francis of Assisi, I believe it was, said it so perfectly. He said, speak constantly of Jesus. And when necessary, use words.
0: Oh, I've said that so many times. It's, yeah.
1: You know, it's yeah. it's a lesson... It's a profound lesson, and it's an awful hard lesson to live, you know. But that's basically what it's about. But I was very fragile when I won Eurovision. But, you know, Martin, I find the people who, because I looked so young,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I I didn't look any different than any of my friends, but I, I looked so so young. Everywhere I went, people kind of, I felt like they were patting me on the head, you know, like a child. And it was, it was frustrating for me and lonely for me because I missed my friends. Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking, I'm not a child. I mean, I'd already decided I was going to be a teacher. I'd already applied to go to college. Yeah. Uh, I didn't want to be a singer. And I thought, no, you know, they don't even know me and they treat me like a baby. But the ones who treated me normally were the Christians that I met. Oh, really? yes and that i felt most comfortable with Mm. and safest with Mm. and they weren't all catholic in fact most of them were not but they they supported me and they loved me where i was and didn't push or pull me Mm. and so gradually i i took step by step in my relationship with god
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah you're born in london you then move over when you were five to Derry in Northern yeah. Ireland. And then we come all the way up to the 1990s, as you've, you've alluded to, you're going to politics. Yep. What encouragement did you get on that career for going into to politics from Northern Ireland, which, if anyone dares to look at the news from what's happened, because we came up to the 25th anniversary of the, the peace process. What encouragement did you get in all that process leading up to you going into to politics?
1: Again, very long story to go into, so I can't go into it, but I didn't want to go into politics. I think I I may have said it earlier. For me, politics had failed Mm. in Northern Ireland, completely failed in Northern Ireland. And I didn't want to hear what politicians of any nationality had to say. And I wasn't interested. So I didn't listen to the news. I didn't care who was you know, the prime minister, or I wasn't familiar with the word Taoiseach for the Republic yes. because I was from Northern Ireland, so first minister or whatever. But then I did a 25th anniversary tour in, uh, well, 1995, and we went all around Ireland. And I always had a kind of a gras for the West. I've always had a kind of a drawing to the West. And I guess it was because when I was about 15, I was taken on a holiday there with a family. And we stayed in a beautiful little village called Newport. And of course, being a city slicker from Derry, as we drove in to this one main street town, I thought, I could not possibly spend three weeks here. (laughs) You know, I will die I absolutely loved it. And there's there's like a silver light there in the evenings because it's all granite stone walls, all rough stone walls. But when the light hits it in the evening, it like shimmers. It's gorgeous. So I loved the time of touring in the West, and we go to Mass each morning and They had done a documentary, which went out on BBC and RTE, of our life in America. All right, okay. And so we did, as we still do, when we have a meal, we eat together as a family, and we say grace before meals. And at that time, what we did, our children, we would all hold hands around the table. And then I would say, Damien would start it, and he'd say, God bless John James, and then He would turn to me and he'd say, God bless Mummy," And I'd say, God bless Ruth. God bless, you know, round the table. I mean, for us, it was just everyday life. But after mass, I find people were gathered to talk to me and how much it meant to them to see that. And I suddenly realized these people are not seeing what they believe reflected anywhere. Nowhere. It's not in the media. Mm. It's not in the national media. It's not in the newspapers. And what it did was it isolated people into pockets. You know, it isolated them. And I was taken aback. And then we'd go on to talk about the the working conditions. The West was actually very underfunded, job-wise, road-wise, you know, it, it was just kind of a neglected area. Yes. And listen, as far as I was concerned, politics couldn't do anything. So I, I wasn't thinking of politics. But 1999, President Mary Robinson stepped down early to take up a job in the UN, mm-hmm. which was seen by many as a great insult to her country. But I got a letter from, I didn't know who they were, but they were a Christian group. And they asked me if I would speak on behalf of the people in the country who felt they weren't being listened to because I had a platform. Yeah. Well, of course, I tore it up and I threw it in the bin. (laughs) I didn't even tell Damien. And then they wrote again to say they'd like to come over and talk to me. And I said to Damien, oh, my, these people are totally, (laughs)
0: totally
1: crazy. I don't even want to speak to them personally, just. Get someone to send them a message that I'm not interested. So we did. We found someone who, who knew one of the people and um, we sent a message. No, please do not come to Alabama. <laughs> no, I'm not interested. And the next thing that happened was they made a press release that I was considering it. And I think it was the Universe newspaper in England printed, Dana considers Irish presidential election. Wow. Oh, I really, truly, I knew, I thought it was going to have a nervous breakdown. I was so upset, so upset because I could see how ridiculous it was and yeah. how bizarre it was. I had never spoken about my feelings, mostly because I felt, apart from my religious beliefs when I'd be asked or my position on protection of life, if yes. I was asked, I would absolutely speak but never on political issues. So I thought, I know how bizarre this is going to look. Then the Irish papers picked it up, and then you know what what made Damien and I, because it's always a decision between both of us, was the fact that my fear of being ridiculous was greater than my concern that these people felt that they were abandoned. And that nobody was listening to them. Mm-hmm. And that nobody cared about them. And eventually that became the argument. Okay. And I just felt, no, I have a platform. I should speak on their behalf. And then I'll never get nominated anyway. Because no independent ever had been. Yeah. The keys of the park, the park being where the presidential residences, were owned by the political parties. So they were only ever political nominees. Independents were completely crushed. They could never get a nomination. But of course, you know, we had to go through if you're if you're saying you're gonna have you're gonna speak for people, yeah. We had to go through the nomination process. There was like I don't remember, over three hundred members in the Doll, the parliament. You only needed, I think it was six to nominate you. So it came in and I thought, oh that would be dead easy we just about got three. Oh, wow. Just about got three. So the next thing we had to do was, the next only way was to appeal to the county councils. So we got a people carrier. My mum went everywhere with me.
0: But not Mary Hopkins' mum this time.
1: No, unfortunately not. <laughs> and my brothers and Damien. And we literally drove to the councils. But, of course, most of them were politically controlled. mm But what had happened was the story broke in the U.K. first. Then it broke in America because I was living in Alabama. Mm -hmm. And so the media there and in Scotland and Wales, they were intensely interested. So they shone a light Uh, on what was happening in this process. And I became the first independent ever nominated. Wow. I've now forgotten what your question
0: was. I'm sorry. Well, no, it was very good. <laughs> I don't care what I the question was now because I was, I was engrossed in that. I think what I was trying to say as well on this is regarding being disillusioned and encouraged and bringing it all the way up. But my next question off that was then going to be from the way that you're sharing, I couldn't ever do this because I am so thin-skinned. And I think to go into politics, you have to be incredibly thick-skinned if you know what I mean by that, and yeah. because you can get all sorts of stuff thrown at you and the press are going to have a go at you. How did you cope in that? And how was your faith at the time when you had all sorts of horrible things thrown at you?
1: Oh, well, I, well, I was thinking of, of ridicule, really. And um, we didn't want to be affiliated to any existing grouping or political party.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we didn't accept financial support from any organization. Or okay. business or anything so we knew we were making a clearing in the forest and we'd stand there and whoever came came and funny things would happen like i remember one night and yes it was fearful there was a lot of fear in there because like i knew i was totally not qualified to do this yeah, yeah, yeah. i mean i i knew that i knew my own ignorance And we'd pull up outside this hotel. I remember it was in Athlone. And there was two doorways. And I got out of the car. And the people from both doorways, who had been standing there for over an hour, as I learned, and had not spoken to each other, both came forward to meet me. And that's when they connected. And one of the leading commentators, he, he was very famous because he was a wild child. Bowman, it was his surname. And the first time we we'd met, he had, 1995, he had castigated me as being a mouthpiece of the church and the. Oh, but anyway, he became one of my strongest supporters. Oh, wow! Because he saw how I was really mocked, and he said, "Look, I, I may not agree with you, but I will. I'll die supporting you." You know, he was a real wow liberal liberal. Yeah, you yeah. know. And and people came from all different belief systems and none because I think they could identify that I was being truthful. Yeah. and And I was honest with people. So what happened was gradually I got more and more and more support. And I ended up coming in third place above the two biggest parties, And the third biggest party, the Labour Party, I got double their vote. And the leader of it resigned. But he had made a big statement previously saying he was now living in post-Catholic Ireland. And I got double their vote. And because of the strength of that vote, which meant nothing to me because, you know, I I just wanted to go back home. People then had all drawn together all these people had drawn together and so a year later when the presidential the European elections were taking place a year and a half later then those people appealed to me you spoke for us once will you speak for us again so my reaction was no I can't go through that again so we we ended up doing the shortest possible campaign the tiniest campaign and I got elected running against a junior minister in the government. So, you know, it was, it was beyond us, you know. But I, I read a thing, it was handwritten, and it was hanging on a, an ice cream shop wall in Cape Cod. Don't know that one. <laughs> which summed up where I found myself. And it said, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Ah, that's great, isn't it? Any of you listening who feel so totally, I felt totally useless and ignorant, and I was. But just listen to that again, any of you listening. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And I think he does that deliberately to constantly remind us that actually we are totally unqualified for most things that we end up doing in life, but he's totally qualified. And if we, if we allow him to take control, if we rely upon him, he will absolutely take us through whatever we have to face in life.
0: That's brilliant, absolutely brilliant, because go back to the car. If you leave the car in neutral, you can then coast. And what you've been doing basically this is how I hear what you've been saying. You've let God, when you've put the car into neutral, guide you to where to go. So you didn't become president, but look what happened as a result of it. You became an MEP on the back of your learning experience, becoming a, a hopeful president. And another quote that you said actually. I may not be a president, but I am a precedent of the summer. Yes. Yeah. That's
1: right. Yes that that's true did you make that quote up yourself because it's brilliant that was from the young man i'm telling you about who is jonathan bowman ah. who has who has since died oh. jonathan said that and we used to meet in secret you know because he was the wild child liberal yeah and and yet he had a core of goodness in him you know and i find in my life too you know i can't ever judge people by what I perceive them to be believing or what they say they believe or what party they belong to or religion they do or don't. God has this amazing gift. If you love someone and respect them as basically a child of God, you're able to bridge so many gaps yes. that would otherwise be there. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Have you got a few more minutes? Because what you're sharing is amazing. and I'm aware of the time as well.
1: Well, I'm I'm so glad that you find it amazing. I'm just sharing as truthfully as I can well, what God's done in my life. Well,
0: if you've got a few more minutes to spare then, if that's all right. Sure. I'd like, I'd like to take you further on. Because the 25 years since the peace process, Derry 1970, that was boiling up to be the hotbed that it unfortunately became. You've been back there quite a few times since. What encouragement have you got in the last 25 years of peace here in Northern Ireland, first of all?
1: Well, I think for peace is always fragile, you know, it's always fragile because there are people who haven't lived through it and who don't know the terrible price that people have paid. Mm -hmm. My husband was a hotel owner with his brother and sister in Newry, which was right on the border. Yeah. And his hotel was bombed seven times and countless incendiaries and countless bomb scares and threats upon his life. And yet through all of that, there was not one hair of one person's head hurt in that building. The final bomb, you know, the roof fell into the basement and it was a tragic, tragic thing and the staff, many who'd been there for 30 years, they didn't just lose their jobs, they lost their family, you know? They were a family. So we were blessed because, and we do believe it was because that building was blessed every single day by his brother who lived in it. He went round with a big gin bottle filled (laughs) with holy water. (laughs) and and he blessed every room and every corridor yes and they're what we would call sacramentals Mm. you know they we believe they are blessed by god in a way that particular way to bless it and that therefore it brings protection blessing with it and there were prayer meetings held there on a regular basis Mm. not one person was hurt what we know of many many people who were killed Mm. Or who were maimed, you know, or emotionally just crushed? So peace is always fragile, and and so I think continued prayer is needed mm-hmm. to maintain that peace. You know, Northern Ireland. I think almost any democracy you look at at the minute, there's a great uncertainty. You know, there's a great confusion about what we take to be, have in our generation. We've lived through lots of uncertainty, but not about the basics about what we believe. You know, it's a very uncertain time. So I can only speak for myself. I have to cling on to God. You know, I have to cling on to what he's telling me, how he's leading me. Because there are many, many people, I think, who feel the same. And just because you don't see your beliefs reflected in the media, quite the opposite. Or on television, quite the opposite. Or in political circles, quite the opposite. There are actually millions who feel the same and who believe the same. And we have to hold tight onto God. We have to hold tight onto what we believe to be true.
0: Wow. It's a pity you not stood in politics, because I think lots of people be listening today would say, well, I'd vote for her. So what is the future then for Dana? Encourage us. Tell us, what's the encouragement for for Dana, and what's going to happen in the future for Dana, please?
1: Well, we were praying. (laughs) Damon and I were praying. We'd gone through probably one of the hardest periods of our lives from 2011 certainly up until very recently very very hard period and coming gradually out of that not completely out of that but coming out of that time we were just asking god what do you want us to do please let us know what you want us to do and please give us the courage to do it and about 10 or 12 years ago my husband's brother, Father Kevin Scallon, a very beautiful man, a very holy priest, a wise priest and man. He said to Damien and I, you know, it's time there was a new hymn to St. Patrick. Well, it was was a bit like saying, it's time you threw your granny off a cliff, you know, because, I mean, it's the only hymn we know to St. Patrick, and it's his hymn. But You know, we said, oh, but if he says something, you think, oh. But we were going through a very difficult time. And so there was no time to even think about it. Mm -hmm. Nothing. And then about five or six years after that, we were driving to Dublin for a mass for the renewal, for people who had been involved in the charismatic renewal. Mm -hmm. And we were praying the rosary. And the third decade of the Glorious Mysteries is the descent of the Holy Spirit. And we were praying. We weren't thinking about St. Patrick. I mean, really, for me, St. Patrick, obviously, as an Irish Catholic, I would have had a devotion to St. Patrick. Mm-hmm. And my town where I was raised, Derry, the Gaelic name is Dere Colum Kill, the oak leaf of the dove of the church, St. Columba, who was one of the great exponents of Patrick's mission and yeah. followers. But for me, St. Patrick was like shamrocks, snakes, and green. I didn't know him. And suddenly, 90% of this song came to me in the car. And I shared it with Damien, and we both thought it was really important. Then in the next five or six years, I knew there was something missing, but I couldn't figure what it was. And Damien was always saying, You've got to record that because that's a really important song. You have to record that. And I would think, yes, I do, but I I don't know what's missing. And then we went to visit with his elder brother, St. Patrick's Centre in Downpatrick, which, if you haven't been there, is a truly beautiful place to visit. It's the only, which I didn't know, the only centre in the world focused entirely on St. Patrick. And as you come out, it's a gorgeous new building. Mm-hmm. Beautiful food there as well. But <laughs> Let me deviate to the human level. <laughs> beautiful food, beautiful gift shop. But uh, just There's an even court. better
0: pub just around the corner, but that's another story. It <laughs> does fantastic food, but anyway.
1: <laughs> yes, I never went there. But <laughs> and you come out the door, you look up, and in the graveyard above the Church of Ireland, that's where St. Patrick is buried. Yeah. And he's buried with St. Patrick's and Bridget St. Columba mm-hmm. in the one grave. And we went to visit there. And Damien happened to mention, oh, you know, Dan has been writing this song to St. Patrick, but it's not finished. And the director said, if you ever get it finished, he said, we're launching this new audio visual, which is gorgeous. And maybe we could launch the song at the same time. And I kind of nodded my head. I didn't say anything. But I thought he's got to be joking. Like it's 12 years, at least as father, father Kevin said to write it. And I'm about five years waiting on this missing bit and blow me end of January. It came, the missing bit came. We retained it on the 1st of February with a wonderful traditional guitarist, dear friend Martin. And you know, as Damien pointed out a few weeks later, you know you routine that on the Feast of St. Bridget. <laughs> and in two and a half weeks, we had it recorded and finished. Mm-hmm. And it's called Light the Fire. And it's been called an anthem for today because St. Patrick's, his whole life, his mission was to light that flame of faith, that love, mm-hmm. that mission. Mm-hmm. So that's happened. I mean, unexpectedly. And at the same time, I did a, a new remixed version of a song that was a, a very big hit for me back in the 70s called fairy Tale."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But fairy Tale" coincided with a cancer scare on my vocal cords, which meant after the operation, I had to take a piece of the cord out. It took me five years to come back to normal wow. singing and performing.
0: Wow.
1: I had learned to speak again. So I always had a fear of that song I've never sung it on stage since then 1976 but my brother did a fantastic new version of it and a remix and a DJ in the northeast of England picked it up started playing it and it's starting to get lots of airplay at the same time as the St. Patrick's song they're completely but you know I think that's what God does you know He takes every strand of our lives and he gathers them together. And whatever you do at whatever stage it's at, he uses every single resource he's given you or that you don't even know you've got. You discover if you say to him, I know you're there. Or if you don't know he's there, I want to know if you're there and then I want to know what you want me to do. And I want you to give me the courage to do it. It's very simple.
0: Wow. For me, what you've just shared there about the cord, the strands, it's like those that are listening today who feel disillusioned, fed up, or whatever, or even are thinking on the opposite. I need encouragement. There you go. Those loose strands of your life, let God come in and attach them so that they can become the cord that He wants them to be. Yep.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And remember, you might be in a holding pattern. Yeah. The first step is to talk to him. You know, If you don't believe in him, then just say, let me know you're there. If you're there, let me know you're there. If you do believe in him, say, I know you're there. But you, you've got to remember the holding pattern. You know, like when the plane comes in, it's going to land, and they say, oh, we just have to hold here for <laughs> And you're circling and you're circling, and you're thinking, when are we ever going to land? Yeah. Sometimes it has to be that way because he doesn't have all, you know, the things together to enable you to do what he wants you to do.
0: Yes. Donna, it's been seriously a real privilege to hear your wise words today. Thank you so much. And before we close off, I've just got one more question, if that's okay. And that is who your Christian hero is. And what we have on this, and this has been going for when I was in radio all those years ago, little did I realize that when I had to give radio up, uh, that I'll be coming back in another form. So there's something else that we've been alluding to as well. And yes. this is one of the features I did called the two-minute hero. So you've got to choose a hero of yours, and it can't be anybody that's still alive because you never know. It might turn out in a few years at a time, they go, oh, look what happened to such and such. So Dana, the Eurovision Song Contest winner of <clears throat> years ago. Okay. and now <laughs>
1: <laughs> It's worth all the money I paid you for that, moment.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's the asthma. And... <laughs> The politician that you then became and TV broadcaster in America. Who is your Christian hero, please?
1: My Christian hero is St. Patrick. And he is my hero because I'm just learning about him as a person. He was trafficked. He was sold into slavery. He lived in abject poverty. He escaped, but not before in all that disillusionment and abandonment. He found faith, he found God, and he escaped. But he returned to the people who did that to him. He was countercultural. He stood in defiance. Some would say of the king. It was in defiance because anyone who lit the Paschal fire before the king would be killed. Mm-hmm. But he lit that fire. But it wasn't fire of anger. It was a fire of love, a love that lit all of this island, and spread beyond this island throughout the world. And that's why in many countries the Irish are welcomed and they're considered warmly. And that's why we have St. Patrick's Day parades around the world. He's a saint. He's a man for today. His message is for today. And he wants to light the flame in our own hearts. You can't light a fire until you light the flame in your own heart. And then it will link with all the flames and the hearts around you. And it is there's a fire of faith and hope and love.
0: It's a great choice. And for those that haven't heard my podcast with Martina Purdy and Elaine Kelly, it's a two-parter uh, we released for St. Patrick's Day, where they take me around all the sights, the sounds, the smells, as somebody would have said on a certain rock film of his sites in uh, and around Down Patrick, please have a listen because it will only get you the, the feeling that you've just got to go and come over here and see what the sites are actually like in real life because it's it was a, a brilliant time for me to spend a day with them. And uh, yes, I feel so much better learning more about St. Patrick as a result. Donna, please give my thanks to your husband for, yeah. for, for all the emails so this has been able to take place. It's been a privilege, sheer privilege to listen to your wise words today. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, it's been a privilege to talk to you, Martin, and I just send my very best to you and your family and to your listeners. God bless.
0: God bless. Thank you, Donna.